This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know these verses well, but I need to open with a question. Elevate, if I could have your ears. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to have the marriage you've always wanted? Now, it sounds like a strange question to ask teenagers. Most teenagers have never even thought about what kind of marriage they've always wanted. So it's sort of a strange question. But I hope that nonetheless, to get you thinking a little bit tonight, are you, are you willing to do whatever it takes to have the marriage you've always wanted? Are you willing to be challenged? Are you willing to begin to think differently about love and sex and marriage and dating? Are you willing to redefine some of those things? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to have the marriage you've always wanted? There are so many messages being pumped into us constantly. Since we're kids, defining what a successful relationship looks like. But tonight, I, I want to mess that up. My, my goal, my personal goal is that everyone in this room is annoyed by love songs and love stories and movies and your friends' relationships for the rest of your life. That we just mess up that concept completely. That's the goal. And the goal is to do that scripturally. So think about this. Every chick flick you've ever seen, every country love song that has three verses, like, like all the love stories that we hear in culture, most of them follow this trend. You have, you have the two people meet, boy meets girl kind of thing. Usually it's under less than ideal circumstances. And then see, things seem to be developing. And just when everything seems like it's going really well, what happens in a, in a chick flick, in a, in a rom-com? is something happens and it sort of falls apart. And you're like, oh no, maybe they won't get together anymore. What's going to happen? And then... One or both of them does this great act of love that saves the day, that saves the romance, and then roll credits, right? And that's kind of what we're, we're bred on. The cultural definition of love, if you look around, and you can come up with a different definition if you want, but I think this is pretty close to what we're seeing, is that love is a powerful, positive feeling towards someone that attracts you to them. A powerful feeling that attracts you to someone. I believe that's what we see in society as a definition of love. Now, culture has fed this to us constantly. But let's put this definition on trial. Let's look around and think through critical eyes and see if this holds up. What is the greatest expression of love between two people? Well, it's a, it's a life commitment. It's a marriage. It's two people saying, no matter what, no matter who, forever, I love you. But what are we seeing in society? Divorce peaked at 53%. And then I found this article from Time Magazine. It's interesting. And here's the title. The divorce rate is dropping. That may not actually be good news. And here's an excerpt from it. Experts now put your chances of uncoupling at about 39%. Hey, that's lower than 53%. This sounds like such promising news. Are families sticking together? 
But the drop in divorce statistics seems to be in large part due to the much maligned millennials. Oh yeah, millennials, those terrible people. One recent study says that compared to their counterparts of 10 years ago, these young people, these millennials, are 18% less likely to get divorced. So have millennials cracked the code? Not exactly. Cohabitating, living together, is becoming a norm in most Western countries. As of 10 years ago, 15% of folks between 25 and 34 were living unmarried with a partner. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that there's less divorces because less people are getting married. That not only are marriages failing, but the idea that marriage is important is also failing and eroding in society. And then of those that stay married, so of that percentage that stay married, another study shows that three out of 10 of those are actually unfulfilling marriages to the people in them. Something's not working. Society's form of love is failing. The principles of love and sex and dating and marriage offer us very little of what we see in society. And it's far easier for people to blame the failure on the institution of marriage than to point the failure where it actually is, and it's in us. It's in our definition of love. Sadly, very few people are willing to, to divorce their definition of love. But if you want something that society doesn't have, you're going to have to do something society's not doing. Hello, I want to make sure everyone's hearing me. If you want something the culture around us isn't having, you're going to have to do something the culture around us is not doing. We're going to need to turn to Scripture to relearn what we know. And fortunately, the Bible tells us where love comes from. It tells us what love is. It tells us what it looks like. And it gives us the perfect example of how love is expressed. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to read verse 1 first. And then we're going to jump down to verse 4 just so that you know that that jump is coming. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And then it's over. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Listen to this. Read along with me. Love never fails. Well, this isn't a definition, but it's a very pointed description. And it helps us identify love a little bit. If you had a description of someone, they have this color of hair and their blue eyes and, and they're wearing this, it helps you identify who that person is. And this is helping us identify what love looks like. So let's look around our culture. Let's think about your friends' relationships and what you're seeing. And let's say, are those things expressing 1 Corinthians 13? And let's grab, let's grab the paramount one. Let's grab that last line. Love never fails. Well, this doesn't seem to be true anywhere in society right now. With relationships, people are constantly breaking up. There's divorces, everything. It seems like love is failing constantly. Why does love seem to fail? Well, compare Scripture 
to what we're seeing in the world around us. In our culture, love has been romanticized, it's been sexualized, and it's been lobotomized. It's been romanticized that it is defined as this romance, this powerful rush of overwhelming feelings, this perfect glance and the shooting stars. And then it's been sexualized, that it seems like the only way that people believe that something is love is if there's physical intimacy involved. Like as if this is the capstone, this is what everyone's shooting for, this must be how I know I'm in love, is if there's sex involved. And ultimately, whenever you grab love and you force it into the box of of romance and sex, it loses all of its effectiveness. It loses the traction. It becomes lobotomized. It's shallow, fragile, empty, fickle. And finally, it's just ineffective. Let's see if you've seen this pattern before. It's kind of the cultural love cycle. So two people, quote unquote, fall in love air quotes, they fall in love. And then there's like the season, everything's going great. Think about your friends' relationships, right? Maybe you've been in a relationship like this. Everything's like going great, woohoo! And then this love seems to sort of fade. And then one or both people get frustrated, they're unhappy, so they break up. Then they rationalize how that person could have been better. What I really need is someone who's more of this or someone who's less of this. And then they try again, so they date someone else. And it starts to cycle all over again. They date again, everything seems like it's going great, the love fades, they become frustrated, break up. Around and around and around. Well, let's, let's think about it. Is that a slide? No, bummer. Let's diagnose a little bit of what's happening in this love cycle. So first, there are these strong feelings that drive people to be physical. Do I have a slide? No. That drive people to be physical. And so this becomes infatuation. And here's something really interesting. And I wish Pat Carlos was in the room right now as the biology teacher and in school for being a nurse. In our brains, infatuation and love release the same chemistry, the same hormones, the same of everything. So there is no way that we can tell by how we feel if something is love or if it's infatuation. We can't feel the difference. It's almost like scripture alludes to this in Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Feelings, listen, feelings can be very, very real, but they can be very, very wrong at the same time. And so there's this first step of getting together and everything seems like it's great, but then it's built on this foundation of feelings, of emotions, of these strong feelings, and it's like a table missing two legs. It's unstable. And then this strong level of emotion isn't sustainable. You just can't live at 100. It's unsustainable. So as it begins to wane, because life happens, what happens? Both, one or both people start pulling from the other person to try to hold on to that feeling, to try to hold on to the emotion. They start pulling from each other, and they're silently saying, I need you to keep these emotions alive. I need you to keep me happy. And so whenever that person isn't providing this level of emotion, it's not sustainable, suddenly one or both people become frustrated. Now two people are turning on each other, selfishly saying, I need you to make me happy. And what's going to happen? It's going to break up. It's going to cause destruction. They're both unsatisfied. They both rationalize it's someone else's fault. Fart. (laughs) Try rebounding after that one. And then there's this sudden tearing because of an emotional investment. 
and it causes pain, rejection. They might spite one another. There may be a self-loathing for themselves. There may be depression. And then they conclude that what they really needed was just the right chemistry, so they go looking for the next emotional high, and they rebound. And the cycle wears out people's hearts. They pick up baggage. They get scars, emotional scars, and they end up numb to love as a whole. Where, where in this cycle is their patience? Where in this cycle is their kindness or humility? Where in this is, is their selflessness, support, trust, endurance? Where is love in this cycle? What society is ultimately saying is that the commitment to the relationship is standing on feelings, holding it up. As long as I have those feelings, I will stay committed to you. That's the foundation of that kind of romantic relationship. I mean, look at our, look at our terminology. If two people are together, we'll say, well, if they say, well, should we stay together? And what's the next question? Well, do they make you, well, do they make you happy? Think about that. Think about the terminology that we say whenever you hear something like this. Well, we fell in love. We fell in love. It was passive. It just happened to me. I didn't have a choice. I didn't even know it was happening. I just got sucked in. No. What does this add up to? It adds up to simply this. I am simply with someone I feel emotional about. That is society's definition of love when we strip away everything else. I'm with someone I feel emotional about. But that's fickle. It's frail. It's selfish. Our feelings aren't all-knowing. Our feelings don't see the future. Our emotions, listen up now, our emotions are not meant to be the test of love, and they're not meant to be the test of who we should love. The commitment of the relationship has to stand on something more stable than feelings. Hopefully you've been annoyed by these big black marks in our screen. This is the best I've got to try to, to show the difference here. So, Trying to put a relationship on feelings, strong feelings, feelings that are like, I've never even felt this way before. It must be love. It's like, it's like we're trying to find something stable, right? And no matter what it looks like, feelings aren't actually something worth stable to, to land on, to base a relationship on. There has to be more. What can we, as Christians, base love on? And it's so crazy. And, and girls, I love you. This is why I'm going to be a little bit pointed with you. I've seen so many girls try to secure commitment from a guy by pulling at his feelings. Maybe she'll act like she's in a constant state of emotional emergency, that she's just needed or she needs to be comforted or saved. Maybe she'll give herself away sexually, hoping that this will tie him to her. But she's chasing a mirage because she's merely trying to acquire his emotions. Emotions that are the very thing that don't last, that are up and down and left and right and change day to day. We can end up chasing emotions. We can worship infatuation, calling it love. C.S. Lewis says that love begins to be a demon the moment it begins to be a god. Love begins to be a demon the moment it begins to be a god. 
We have to be so careful with our feelings. So if it's not a feeling, what is it? Let's see if we can track this down. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. I think this gives us a good starting point for how God created us and what he intended for our lives. Verse 28. I think we have it up there. Sweet. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's blessing. This is his instruction to Adam and Eve. And what is his blessing? Go into the world and take dominion. Go into the world and live it up. Grab life by the horns. Go into the world. You have one choice after another choice to not be passive, to not things, let things just happen to you. No, grab life by the horns and take dominion over life. God gives us the power to choose. And this is the definition of love. I'm going to defend this in a minute, but I'll lay it out. I think we have it on the screen. The definition of love, biblically, is a commitment to choose. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, strong feelings are something that happened to us. Staying in love is something we do. Real love isn't something we feel. It's something we choose. We choose a friend. We choose a brother or a sister. How on earth could Jesus say, love your enemies, if it meant that we had to stir up feelings towards them? You don't stir up feelings towards someone who hates you, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can choose them. Love is a commitment to choose. It's saying, I choose you. In a romantic relationship, it's saying, I choose you. From a mother to a child, she's saying, I choose you. I choose you whether I have feelings or not. Despite circumstances, despite sacrifices, I choose you. And you might think, well, maybe this doesn't sound very romantic, but think about this really with me. Do you see the stability of this? Do you hear something that has weight and meaning and selflessness? Do you hear something attractive? That love would be a commitment to choose. But here's the good news. I need everyone's attention. If love is not a feeling, but love is a choice, eyes on me, it empowers you to choose wisely. Oh, that should be freeing. If love is a choice, it empowers you to choose wisely. No longer led blindly by emotions, but led by wisdom and the Holy Spirit inside of his people. It changes everything. Why do smart people get involved with partners who are abusive and manipulative and cheat on them? Smart people see the flags. They recognize angry outbursts. They recognize porn addictions. They recognize manipulation. But they're so sure that they love them because they feel strongly for them. So they make a commitment based on feelings. And they end up in terrible relationships. But if love is a choice, it empowers you to choose wisely. You get to lead with wisdom. You get to lead with the Holy Spirit. But let's go further. If love is a commitment to choose, it actually says something about us. It says something about yourself. For example, if I was to call someone my student, that would make me the... If I call them son, that makes me the... All right. So just like those examples, what I say about someone else, I'm also saying something about myself. If I say, I choose you only, 
there is an implied unspoken commitment that I am setting myself apart from others to be theirs. There is an exclusivity about the word love. Song of Solomon 6.3 says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I hold them and they hold me. I choose them and I become theirs. This changes everything. There's a depth, there's a weight, there's an anchor to this. You shouldn't say, I love you in a relationship too quickly because the phrase, I love you, comes with commitment, especially if love never fails. We have to be careful. Jackie and I made a commitment at the beginning. We weren't going to tell each other we loved each other until we knew we were going to get married because love is a commitment. Think about it this way. Did you know that you could start loving your future spouse, should the Lord choose for you to be married, you can start loving them now, even if you haven't met them. Well, how is that possible? If love is a feeling, how can I stir feelings towards someone I never met? But love isn't a feeling. Think about this. Let's say a teenager makes a decision in their heart. I am only going to give myself, my whole body, sexually, to my marriage partner, to my spouse. I'm making this commitment right now today. I don't even know who they are, but I'm making this commitment for them today. I'm only going to have sex with my spouse. Think about what's happening in that decision. They're saying, without even knowing who they are, I choose them and I set myself apart from everyone else to be only theirs. You can begin, if love is a choice, you can begin right now in ways just like that to love your future spouse. Oh, that the Lord would be working in their heart too right now. That they would make a decision as a teenager to say, I'm choosing my future spouse, which gets to be you. How cool would that be? Real love, and I'll defend these in a minute. Real love has three indisputable traits. These are worth writing down. Because every love song you hear, every movie you see, every TV show, you can now gauge it by these three traits. Is it love? Well, does it have these three things? First, love is sacrifice, and it's nothing less than that. It is sacrifice and nothing less. Love is a position reversal. I choose you over myself every time. There is no selfishness in a commitment to love. It's always, I choose you. Love, number two, decreases distance. Love says, we are too far apart. I'm gonna get closer. Not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. I wanna be more connected. This isn't just in romance. This is love, period. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. There's a guy hurting and bleeding and unconscious and two people come by the road and what do they do? They create distance and go to the other side. But Jesus says, but there's this one. He crosses the road to him. Which is the neighbor? What's that one? It's the one who decreased distance, who chose him over self. And number three, love is unconditional. It doesn't say, I will love you if, I will love you, but love says, I love you. I choose you, and I set myself apart to be yours. I can tell you that as a parent, there are times when I don't feel emotionally 
great about my children. But I choose them. You may not feel emotionally great towards your parent all the time, but what is love? You keep choosing them. Or your siblings or your friends. This is love. It's sacrifice. It decreases distance. It's unconditional. It's unconditional from this day forward. These are the love commitments that we make at a wedding. From this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, to love, to cherish, till death do us part. No matter what the circumstances are, I love you unconditionally, period. So these are your new tests. These are your new tests for love. Whenever your, your friend at school is like, oh, I just love them so much, you can be like, are you sacrificing for each other? Are you fighting to be closer? Is it unconditional? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's infatuation. If an emotional commitment won't last, what can a choosing commitment stand on? We still haven't gotten to what can we stand on that's unmoving. We've just said that a love can't stand on emotions, but what can love stand on? And just for a minute, a very purposeful kind of side rabbit trail, I want to talk for a second about who God is. God, God's character, his attributes boil down to two traits, to two clear attributes. And every other attribute kind of comes out of these two. The first one is in 1 John 4, 8. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love, biblically defined. What is love? God is love. Now, we don't worship love as if love is God. No, God is Love. God defines love using his own character because he's the originator. It's love comes from him. Love is not like an abstract idea. It's not like this thing over here and God happens to have a whole lot of love. No, it's from God that true, real love comes. And either God's love is in your relationship or it's not. So what better source to learn about love than from love himself? Out of God's love springs his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his kindness. But God is love and God is also holy. Holiness means set apart. Set apart for a purpose. Isaiah 6.3, this is who our God is. Three times in triplicate, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is what's being sung by angels 24-7 around the throne. And from his holiness comes his his justice, his jealousy, his wrath, his protection. God is entirely set apart from his creation. Now watch this. This is where it gets fun. How does God love you? In what ways? John chapter 15, verse 12 through 14, then jumping to 16. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is about to do this. And jump to 16. I, or you, did not choose me. What does it say? I chose you. What is love? How is it expressed? Love is a commitment to Jews. How does Jesus love you? He chose you. That's how, he, that's how he loves. That's how he's expressing it. It doesn't say, I have strong emotions that attract me to you. No, he says, I choose you. Whether you are great today or you're terrible today, I choose you. Whether you have it all together, whether you fall apart, whether you make mistakes, whether you, whether you sin, I choose you. I choose you. 
Romans 5, 7 through 8. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare to even die. But God, listen to this, God shows his love for us. How does God show his love? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I choose you. Before you can even choose me, God says, I picked you. How beautiful is this? God chose us. And what did he do? He died for us. He set himself apart to die for you. God chose us, and he set himself apart to die for us. Hebrews 8.10 says, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, God's people, after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. Listen, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. I choose you, and I set myself apart to be yours. God says, I choose you, and P.S., I'm going to be yours. I inherit you, and you inherit me. What kind of God is this? I am theirs, and they are mine, he says. So not only is he the originator, but Jesus gives the ultimate example of love's three traits. Love is sacrifice and nothing less. 1 John 4, 1 John 4.10, this is real love. Not that we loved God. This is real love right here, defined. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Love is sacrifice and nothing less. Love decreases distance. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians chapter 2 says that even though he was in the form of God, he didn't grasp that power. For this, for this period of time, he emptied himself to be a servant, to go to the cross for us. He went from glory to us. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus' last words are, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. Love decreases distance. And three, love is unconditional. Look at his unconditional forgiveness. Luke 23, 34, Jesus has been tortured and crucified, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We know that he chose us because he sacrificed for us. He closed the distance between himself and us, and he forgives us unconditionally. So let's go back to the question. If it's not feelings, what can we anchor the commitment of love in? What can it stand on that's lasting? Let's start abstract, and then we'll get a little bit more practical. The answer is that we choose to base our relationships on who God is, on him, on his character, on his everlasting love. But how do we do that? Matthew 22, verse 35. Let's turn there together. Matthew 22, verse 35. You probably read these a bunch of times, but I think you might read it a little bit differently tonight. Someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, of all the commandments, of all the things we're supposed to do, what's the most important? And this is Jesus' response to that. Matthew 22, verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, period. Let's stop there for a second. Now, if we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, 
with all of our mind. All three of those are all-inclusive statements. It's like to the exponent of three. We love our God with all of our heart. We love him with all we have. We love him with all our, our, our minds. We love him with all we have. We love him with all our souls or whatever it is. It's totally inclusive in triplicate. Nothing left for anything else. It's not that we love God first and love everyone else second. It's that we love God first totally and completely. And then he says, and the second, listen to the language here, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So wait, wait, how does this make sense? How do we love God so much there's no room for another? How can we give 100% to God but love anybody else if we haven't kept any percent to be for anyone else. Listen to the language. The second is like it. Now that phrase, like it, is used nine other times in Matthew. Nine other times. Every single one of those nine times, Jesus is always using a parable. Jesus would say, such and such is like the kingdom. What's the kingdom of heaven like? It's like this. And he would give a parable describing maybe a farmer or maybe a guy finding treasure or maybe a, a, a tree. And he would always say that the kingdom of heaven is like this. That word like is right there. And a parable has a job. A parable's job is to take something that we can understand, that we can see and visualize to teach something that is invisible and mysterious. And so the kingdom of heaven is invisible and mysterious, but it's real. So Jesus teaches about what we can't see by applying something we can see. Now stay with me. The second is like it. Our relationship with our neighbors, with our parents, with our friends, with a romantic other is going to be a demonstration, a parable, a representation of how much we love God. I don't know if that sunk. The visible love that a Christian gives to someone else is an illustration of their love for God. How much does this Christian love the Lord? You can tell by how much they love people. This is 1 John 4. Go read that later. You know that someone knows God because they love people. And if they don't love people, it's obvious that they have no love of God in them. Our love for others is an illustration of our love for God. It's kind of like this. If we can't stand on emotions because it fails, this is the kind of illustration where we can jump onto something solid. Our love for God. Consider God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. He's unchanging. If our love is based on him, then our love will be like him, unchanging. It will express his character, his attributes. Right? I'm really glad that table didn't break. It would have ruined my illustration. How can we love someone else with an unconditional love? Well, it's not our love. It's an illustration of God's love. We love Jesus first. We set our lives apart for him first. That's salvation. Every salvation begins with someone saying, Jesus, I choose you 
And I set myself apart from everyone and everything to be yours. That's salvation in a nutshell. That's the sinner's prayer. I choose you, God, and I make myself yours. This is what Romans 12:1 says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we give our frail, fickle, human love, everything we can muster, all that we have, and we give it to him. God, it's not much, but it's, but, but it's what I have, and I give it to you. And then what happens? God loves you. And he loves people around you. And he loves the people around you through you. We give everything that we have to God. God, I give it all to you. And God flows through his people, through the Holy Spirit, out of them to the people around them. How can you love a future spouse unconditionally? Well, it's not your love anymore. You loved God and you make him first. And God loves your spouse through you. And God loves your your friends through you and your parents through you. And God loves your enemies through you. You put Jesus first. You make your relationship with him more important. How do we base a love on something solid? You love Jesus wholly and completely. When Jackie and I were first talking about dating, Jackie and her wisdom told me about the idea of a triangle. In fact, we were on this dark road and there was a lantern on the other side of a lake. And she said, here, hold your finger. And I held my finger. I'm like, whatever you want, you're cute, okay. And, and she said, watch this. Let's bring our fingers closer to the light, like a triangle, like this. And she said, let's both pursue the Lord in this. And when we meet, we're either going to pass each other, because it's not God's will, or we'll walk together. But let's turn our attention. Instead of trying to focus on each other and try to fight for a relationship to happen between us, let's focus on the Lord. And as we get closer to him, we'll get closer together. I was like, whoa, who is this girl? This is so wise. And that is what's happening here. That is what love is going to look like in a romance. It's, I'm going to love the Lord with all my heart, and it's either going to bring me closer to someone else, or we're going to pass. I want to give my wife that kind of love. I want to give my friends that kind of love. I want to give the people around me a kind of love that I don't have. I don't even like people most of the time. How can I love them unless there is a God who loves them through me? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to have the marriage you've always wanted? Are you willing to redefine love? Quick recap. Love is not an emotion. Our feelings cannot be used to identify it. What is real love? Love is a commitment to choose. If love is a choice, it empowers us to choose wisely. What does I love you mean? It means I choose you and I set myself apart for you. Love has three traits. It sacrifices, it decreases distance, and it's unconditional. God's character is love, and he's expressed. He's expressed his love toward us through Jesus. And when we love him first, all our relationships will be enriched with his love. And just as a caveat, as you're considering your relationship with the Lord, Many times, God's love for us seems distant, maybe because we're applying the wrong definition for love. Maybe because we're thinking, how I feel is how I defined God's favor towards me. 
Do you love God? I don't know. I don't really feel it lately. Maybe, maybe we think that God's love is just his strong emotion towards us. And so we think that God's love is distance because we don't feel some sort of strong emotion. No, I mean, there's going to be times for that. I promise, whenever you genuinely choose someone, there's going to be high emotions in that. It's going to be great. It's like the seasoning on what God does. But we don't base anything on them. And there's going to be times in our relationship with Jesus that is great and it's awesome and it's fully charged and we just enjoy his presence. But that's not sustainable. But just because we don't feel it every day doesn't mean that God no longer loves us unconditionally, that he's not drawing us closer to him. Because love isn't an emotion. We can't gauge his love towards us that way. But what we can gauge is what he's done. And he's decreased the distance. He's sacrificed for us and he loves us unconditionally. Heavenly Father, I pray that small groups would be rich. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to define love. And I pray that love stories are messed up forever in all of our minds. That they just, they're thin. That this week you're going to start turning on our, our ears, our sensitivity, our radar, that we'll start hearing things and go, oh, wow, that's it. It's so shallow, it's so broken, so thin. Let us start seeing them and hearing them through the eyes of Scripture. Lord, bless the e-group leaders as they lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.